Mighty God and everlasting Father, we come before you, having confessed our sins, desiring that we be forgiven and cleansed, we ask now, Lord, that you would implant in us the ability to hear your word clearly and rightly, that we might love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We look to you, Lord, as we consider Genesis 15, as we consider the cutting of the covenant, as we consider your holiness, that you would aid us in being reminded about who we are in relationship to who you are, the promise keeper. We ask, O oh God, that you would aid us to hear well, that there would be unction today, special ministry of the Spirit today, granting us your favor and understanding the word, which for us is the means of grace. We so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. But Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him, and cut them in two down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. The scriptures here demonstrate in this section, and beginning with 15 and moving into some of these other subsequent chapters, covenant. It's already been seen, as we studied last week, that God comes to Abram in a vision. 
He comes to him in a theophany. He appears to him in order to demonstrate something concerning the word of God. When God shows up, he's going to teach his people something. God is Abram's reward. He is literally his shield, his covering, his protector from himself. Remember that this reward is tied to justification. That Abraham believed, and as a result of believing, it was reckoned to him righteousness. Abram wanted spiritual blessing over material blessing. And so, as we studied, God was this reward for him, and this justification was a reward to him. Then comes these cycles of his questions. What will you give me, he asks. Eliezer is going to be my heir because I go childless. I have no offspring. Somebody who's a servant in my house is actually going to be my heir. And God then responds by his word. No, Eliezer of Damascus will not be the heir. The heir has to be from your own body. Your seed, the seed of the woman, ultimately. Then God gives him an object lesson with the stars. Remember that oftentimes when men look at the stars, they're seeing their insignificance. Here, Abraham is seeing his significance. That his descendants will be like the stars of the heaven, innumerable. The result of the object lesson was belief in God's promise and the accounting of that belief for righteousness. Now, with that summary... We continue with what the chapter teaches us concerning covenant. God defines the promise that he makes to Abram on himself, by himself. Covenants always have prologues. Covenants always attest to the covenant maker, a pattern which will later be used again and again in the book of Exodus and also for the Ten Commandments. I brought you out of. It starts with God demonstrating his power, demonstrating who he is, demonstrating his working among his people. The promise is built on the being of God, his trustworthiness, his power, his character. He already brought Abram out of the pagan land and into his covenant. It was exactly what Paul is talking about in Galatians, which we'll mention later, that the gospel was preached to Abraham. It was preached to him in chapter 12, when it said that I'm going to bring you out and I'm going to make your descendants as the stars of heaven. So here, he says again what he said before, but more firmly. It's now more firmly supported. It's more further explained. And so, Abram, though, demonstrates a massive lack of trust. A second set of questions starts to ensue in verse 8. But how can I know? And he's talking to God. And he's asking the question, but how can I know? Here, it's not simply an inquiry. This is a question. In vain, he looks to be assured apart from the word of God, and he doubts. Now, the Lord here doesn't chasten him, but concedes to him long-suffering. And he answers 
his anxiety. In verse 10, he demonstrates the reality of the covenant of grace. The covenant that is being ministered now to Abram. The promises of God have been related to the land. But here we see that the promise is more fully explained in that now the promises shift to the seed, to the descendants. Ultimately, that seed, as we'll see, is Christ. The animals then are prepared. He tells them, we're going to cut a covenant. The word covenant in and of itself means to cut or to slice in that way. We're slicing together. We're cutting a covenant together. And at this point, God doesn't say, Abram, would you like to do this with me? Or Abram, what do you think about this? Or Abram, this or that. He doesn't say anything like that. He simply institutes the covenant with him. And so he tells Abram exactly what he needs to do. Prepare the animals for sacrifice. And what does he do? He doesn't question God. He takes and he prepares the sacrifice. And that does demonstrate Abram's faith in God. The birds of prey come. They want to destroy the covenant pieces there and eat the carcasses. And Abram has to drive them away. And at that point, once the cutting has been accomplished, just as Moses was placed in the cleft of the rock and God covered him as he passed by so that he couldn't see the full unveiled glory of God, God takes Abram here and places him in a deep sleep. God cannot show up and have men just stand there and gaze upon him in such a way. So he places the deep sleep of the horror of God upon him. He gives him the Egyptian prophecy. Israel will inherit Canaan through the supernatural power of God's leading. They will be there 400 years, though, in oppression. Why so long? Well, because of God's long-suffering and plan towards sinners. He says here that even the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet completed. That, in and of itself, demonstrating a very powerful line concerning election and reprobation, which we'll ultimately talk about. They will be afflicted, but, God says, they will be redeemed. And you, Abram, even now, don't worry. You are going to be buried at a good old age. You're going to be buried in peace. Your descendants will leave here, but they will return. And the reason that you are not to destroy the land's inhabitants now is because there's more judging to do. God still is allowing the Amorites to fill up a certain measure of their sin, in that judgment will come upon them to the uttermost, as Paul describes in Thessalonians. And then, in verse 17, we find a demonstration of God's holiness. The smoking oven or the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. In the midst of the horror of the darkness in this vision, in this deep sleep that Abram is in, the smoking pot and the flaming torch demonstrate a symbol of God's utter holiness and his power that passes between the pieces of the cut covenant. And what does he do? 
He swears by himself in the very act of moving in between these pieces and he makes covenant with Abraham. Now, in looking at the text and going over it in that manner, there are a couple of key important ideas surrounding the idea of covenant that we have to keep in mind. One, God is a covenant-keeping God. This is the way that God works. This is the way that God is in relationship with people, all people, either by the covenant of works under the fallen curse of Adam or under the covenant of grace in which he instills here with Abram. One or the other. Men will stand before God ultimately and be judged, and they will be judged according to their works. How will they fare? Will they have a shield, or will they not have a shield? The word covenant simply means a contract or agreement between parties. It's the literal definition of the word covenant from the Hebrew text. Even the children's catechism defines this as, quote, an agreement between two or more persons, simply stated. The earliest Reformed writers on this particular topic, even stretching all the way back to Irenaeus, who spoke about covenant, and Augustine speaks of it in the same way. I'll use Ursinus in his definition where he says, quote, it's a mutual promise and agreement between God and men in which God gives assurance to men that he will be merciful to them. And on the other side, and on the other side, men bind themselves to God in this covenant that they will exercise repentance and faith and render such obedience as will be acceptable to him. Are there conditions to the covenant? Yes, there are conditions to the covenant. God keeps covenant. Now, Abram must keep covenant. Abram didn't walk between the pieces. God did, though. And God swears in that covenant by himself that he will keep covenant. But it's conditioned upon whether or not Abram will have faith or not. This was the whole demonstration here about he was lacking faith. And then God had to strengthen that faith through the cutting of the covenant with him. Now will he keep it? God keeps covenant in this covenant of grace that he's ministering to his people by blood. The dead animals call upon God to do so to me more also if they're not faithful in keeping covenant. God passes between the two. And basically he is saying, if I don't keep my promises... Let what has happened to these animals be done unto me. In Genesis 15, God passes between the parts of the animals. Abram laid them out. And he demonstrates his holiness and its relationship in the agreement. The covenant idea stressed here is legal, binding. And it's legal and binding on God as much as is Abram. Both must keep covenant. Both must uphold what the covenant stipulations are. They mean to God that he must uphold his end of the bargain, the pact or agreement. 
and it means for sinful men, Abram who watches that, he must exercise faith in the covenant keeper, in the promise keeper. And it is this that is the essence of the covenant, which was why we designated the covenant of grace. Because it's nothing that Abram did. What did he do? He was, a, he was an observer of everything that God was doing, yet the relationship that God was making was with him. God graciously provides in his covenant promises the reconciliation of sinners to himself so that he can be a God to them and that they can be his people. Which is exactly what the New Testament resounds in terms of explaining the covenant of grace. It's explaining what's going on here. God is represented as faithful as a covenant-keeping God, even when his people are not always faithful. And in this very passage, Abram is already doubting. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Does that change once we get into the New Testament? Not at all. Zechariah, in knowing that the birth of Christ had happened, celebrates this aspect in his song. When he says, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Luke 1, 72. It's the very same things. The most frequent title that's given to the covenant in the Old Testament is the everlasting covenant. God will reiterate the covenant made in Genesis 15 and made in Genesis 17, as we'll see. And he's going to call it everlasting it was a ratification of what God will call the sure mercies of David in Isaiah 55.3. And of God's covenant made with Israel in the day of Israel's youth, i.e. with the patriarchs, as he said in Ezekiel 16.60. Perhaps the key text con connecting the everlasting covenant with the future covenant of peace made with the nature and with such contents of Jeremiah's covenant, as it says... I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is the idea behind what covenant is all about. Calvin didn't miss this point when he commented on Ezekiel 16:61, for he called the everlasting covenant a renewed covenant, and concluded by saying that the new covenant so flowed from the old that it was almost the same in substance while distinguished in form. It's not that Something is going to change that God saved Abram in a special way here that he's not saving us now in some different way. The ratification of that covenant, as we'll see, is going to be in Christ regardless. And that's why he tells Abram that it's in your seed, capital S, which is Christ, that all the nations shall be blessed. God is a covenant-keeping God. Secondly, God can be trusted in a covenant because he is God. Oftentimes, God is doubted. Just think of the last week. How many times did you doubt in some way? Take Abram and his complaints. How will I know? The, the Hebrew there is, how will I know? How will I really know? Can you imagine saying that to God? How can I know God's will? Why is God doing this to me? What is he going to do with me? 
These are the same kind of questions that Abram had. At first glance, questions like these seem relevant. Abram had no children. He was going to have to adopt Eliezer. Did he, did he have a valid question here? But in reality, it just shows the weakness of our human nature and the little trust that people often have in the way that God works. In trusting him. But God can be trusted because he is God. Now, is that profound? Yes, actually, it's very profound. Because of who he is. Think about the Greek gods. Greek mythology and the strangeness of why the Romans would have believed in such little g-gods. Zeus doesn't know what Hermes is doing and Hermes is plotting behind his back. They don't even know what's going on. They are simply these exalted mortals in certain ways. Once people know that God is omniscient, that he is omnipresent, that he is omnipotent, that he is immutable. Well, they'll know that he can be trusted because he is able to handle their trust. Once his character is known, they will rely on the God that has revealed himself in his word to his people, which means that his people must know the word, that his people must know who God is according to his self-revelation in the word. How does God show us through his word that he can be trusted? Well, in a word, just like he did with Abram, covenant. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners. You see how Paul sets that up? We quote that in Romans 5a. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is a very compact verse describing covenant. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, exactly what's going on in Genesis 15, covenant, Christ died for us. So God can be counted upon that he sends his one and only son into the world to die. The pledge of the fire pot and the torch are fulfilled in the brilliance of the image of Christ, in the brilliance of what he does and who he is. The pledge is now not a smoking fire pot and a burning torch. Those were mere symbols of God's holiness in the darkness of the world. But now these give way to the full reality of who Jesus is when he comes and when he dies and when he is raised again to life. The Son of God gives meaning to the fulfillment of the animals that are torn in two. They're cut. He is cut. In covenant. And not only must the Christian trust in the holy God, the smoking fire pot and flaming torch of God's holiness, which is very hard to do, but their trust is fully reserved for the one slain. And he dies as a pledge. He makes the cut covenant in Genesis 15 worthy. He makes it powerful. He gives it meaning. Those symbols are fulfilled in what he does. And it's not just, if I don't uphold my end, then I shall be cursed, but in Christ, he actually becomes the curse for his people and takes upon him that purpose. There is no religious idea in any other religion anywhere in the history of mankind that has that particular point. 
set in it. Christ ratifies, or uh, maybe another word might be empowers, the cutting of the covenant for his people. That's why justification, as I talked about in Genesis 1-6, to is the empowerment of the covenant. It's the outworking of the promise. Christ's work, the blood upon the cross, ratifies the covenant that he has with his people. It makes the animals that Abram sacrificed and cut in half mean something. The work of Christ affects time as an infinite sacrifice, which means that even though Jesus dies in a certain, on a certain day at a certain time, the significance and efficacy and power of that sacrifice transcends that moment. And as a result of that, it is applied to every sacrifice and every time throughout the history of the world previous to that, that Abram sacrificed, or Moses sacrificed, or David sacrificed. It wasn't, it's not that the blood of bulls and goats saves, but those by faith who look to that as the type of the Messiah to come, then receive the benefits of it because the cross reaches back in time and makes those things mean something. He does not only say what he will do for his people, but he does it. And he uses his own life to do it, to keep covenant. Think about this. If you were God, how upset would you be with your people who transgressed the covenant after giving up your only son for the covenant to save them? Is it that difficult to see why God grieves over such things as why we see over and over again throughout the scriptures his people doing something that they shouldn't be doing, acting in a way that they shouldn't be acting, and as a result, doubt and go their own way. The cross and resurrection of Christ should make the strength of a Christian's faith stronger, not that it should doubt. Jesus deserves that people trust in him. And it is a sin not to trust him. Why? Thirdly, the God of the covenant should never be doubted. Ever. It is a sin to doubt Christ and his work. In Mark 4, 35-41, the wind and the waves obey Christ. How is it, he says, that you have no faith? In verse 40. It's, it's, almost, it's questionable. He asks the question to them. He puts it, how could you possibly doubt me? People doubt. Abram doubted because of sin in various forms. Doubtings have no part in faith. They cannot consist at the same time, in the same instance of faith. For it's impossible to have faith and to doubt at the same time. If a Christian doubts, that they're not trusting. If they trust, then they're not doubting. Abraham was strong in faith. He had been justified by faith. But yet we see his original sin peering out again. God comes to him and he, and he begins to doubt. He doesn't understand how these things are going to work out. And he doubts. Often, people both strong and weak in their Christian walk will let sin get the upper hand in them. 
And sin will take its occasion to drive them to doubt their Lord. It's an imperfection in their faith because they give way to the doubt. O ye of little faith, why do you doubt? Jesus should never say this to the Christian. It's why it's inscripturated for us that we would learn from it. It grieves him to even utter these words, which is the way that Mark places it in chapter 4. How is it that you have no faith? Weak faith has little experience with God, so it doubts. People who are more burdened with the world than with the things of God will seldom meet with God, and thus they doubt his work in their lives. How much influence does the Christian have all week? How much influence is upon him? Is the word, is the covenant continually laid upon his mind in that way? When a person's focus is off Jesus Christ, they will have to doubt. There's nothing else that they can do because their trust shifts to that which cannot be trusted. Abraham was trusting himself in some way. What do I have to do to fix this situation because Eleazar is the one who's going, I'm going to have to adopt him and he's going to be heir because I'm too old. He's thinking all of those things. This is when they pray, they seek God, they strive to be close to him, but in the end it is as if they were no closer than when they had first started. Obadiah Sedgwick, one of the Puritans, rightly says, we let Satan in here. He says, look, he says, how needless, how fruitless all their care and service to God is. God doesn't think of you. That places doubt in our mind. What is God doing with me? But that demonstrates an ignorance of God's work. We look at the scriptures and the scriptures guide us. That question, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? How will God work these things out? The book answers it. It answers those questions particularly for us. It answers them in the covenant and promises of God that God is sure to uphold us and to walk with us and to carry us and to give us everything that we need to make it through the day. Sometimes it's just the day that we need to get through. But when you are unaware of what God says, what will happen? You will doubt. That's why covenant theology cures doubting the covenant keeper. God must first obviously open our eyes. Sleeping children do not make the bus. He has to open our eyes. We have to be alert and awake to see the need to rush out the door and get on the bus. Without knowing then the promises of the promise keeper... One will have opportunities to doubt. They'll have opportunities to give into their anxiety and to doubt the promises that lay hidden in the Word. People must fly to the Word. We, as Christians, must fly to the Word. And we pray and ask that God would aid us in understanding what His promises are to us as the great promise keeper. It's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And it doesn't mean we all suddenly all up and abandon our vocations or don't do all the necessary things and just continually pray without stopping. It means that we should be in such an attitude of prayerness throughout the day, every day, all of the time, that we're relying upon God for all things and trusting Him. Hebrews 4.12 says that the throne of grace should be fiercely sought after. 
We come boldly before the throne of grace to have help in time of need. People must pray the same as the disciples in Luke 17, 5. Lord, increase our faith. Abram, in doing these things, took the covenant sacrifices, cut them and did what God said, and believed him. But we have to open our Bibles to know what his promises are. Many times the Bible is just part of the Christian Sunday suit. They walk in with it under their arm and that's it. The basics of the Bible are often foreign to most Christians. We asked or, or had a little quiz, what is it? What does it mean to be justified? What does it mean that God is a covenant-keeping God? These are the, those are basic things concerning our salvation. That's why the psalmist says in 119.105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God swears by himself, swears by his own being, that he will uphold his end of the covenant for his people. And people can be assured that the covenant stands, and they don't have any need to fear. When their emotions deceive them, just as they did Abram, that they must rely on what they know to be true instead of what they feel. Doubting is an emotion that can only have the power that people give it. What we give in temptations towards doubting, God stems from incorrect knowledge and a feeling of doubt. The remedy is to have right knowledge and to rid ourselves of those deceptive feelings. Particularly, people doubt their salvation. Oftentimes. They sin, they say, am I saved? I guess I'm justified. I sure don't feel like it. But this is the whole point. Never, never, ever does the Bible ever say, you know that you're justified because you feel so. You know that you're right with God because you feel so. Never says that. It always says that my people are destroyed. Why? Because they feel? No. Because of a lack of knowledge. They don't understand my promises. It's, that really is one of the biggest complaints that Christians have. I don't feel I am saved because of a feeling. Imagine if your marriage was based on feeling. How we would fall in and out of marriage all of the time. Imagine if what church you attended was based on feeling. The world, the flesh, and the devil all want you to doubt. But the cure is relying on what you know to be true about God and his promises. This is what Abraham trusted in. What God spoke to him about. What he saw and explained. So, I, a very simple applicatory question would be, how well do you trust God? God is the promise keeper. Jesus Christ hates it when we doubt him. Doubt is when the mind pauses. Think of it that way. Like you're, when you have a DVD and your DVD player and you're, and you're watching something and you pause it. The story stops. What will happen next? We don't know. Because it's on pause. Doubt is when the mind pauses. It's the inhibitions of the soul to the promises of God. And it's no wonder why Jesus says in Luke 6, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my saying and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. 
And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house. You could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. For all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20. But what if you don't know the promises? Be aware. There is one kind of doubting, though, that is questioning. That kind of... It's, it's okay to have a question. It's not okay to doubt as a result. There is one kind of doubting that is simply a question and another one that is a disquieted soul about something. Just like Abraham. He had a disquieted soul about what was going on. It wasn't just merely a question. Mary asked in Luke 1.34, when Gabriel came to her and told her about themselves, how shall these things be? That wasn't the same as, oh no, I've got to adopt Eliezer. What am I going to do? I don't have... It's different. One is asking a question. The other is a deliberate question about what is true. That God had already told him how things were going to be. It's that word in 1 Timothy 2.8, doubt. Have no doubtings. Abram did. And oftentimes we do. We doubt. And when we doubt, we're saying, Oh Lord Jesus, I don't believe the work you did on the cross is really sufficient. I don't really believe you're sovereign. I'm a little leery of everything and I'm not sure that I can necessarily trust you. That's basically what we mean when we doubt. Lord, how shall I know that I will inherit it? It's exactly what Abram said. But God allows us to doubt to test our faith. And he provides the way of escape to strengthen us and to cause us to be more zealous for the covenant promises. You have to ask yourself, have I doubted? I don't know of anybody who hasn't. I would like to meet the person who says that he has never doubted God. With Abram, it was the same as it is with us. And it doesn't matter of what kind of doubts that we have. Doubts arise about jobs. They arise about our family and children. They arise about schooling. They arise about our future. And may the Lord forbid it in us, our very salvation. But in all of these things, there is a failure on our part to hold on to what God has promised us. I will be with you always. Like the corrosion of rust on a car, doubt corrodes the soul that way, slowly eats it up. But doubting can be dispelled through trusting God's word. Abram's doubt didn't just up and disappear. What did God do? He instructed him. He demonstrated to him. And by faith, he acted and he desired to be more fully instructed on these things. It's really using the word of God rightly and understanding what God is saying to us, which means that this lays heavy emphasis not only on hearing the word, but on using the word rightly. Not just that we know, because we could know things. Now we have to take those things and we have to put them into practice. That means that they have to stir our souls after we hear it. Do you think that after he saw the smoking fire pot and the torch and the demonstration of God's holiness amidst the cut sacrifices? Because he understood what cutting a covenant was. He had done it before he was even converted. It was a regular means by which business transactions would have taken. So let what is done to these animals be done to me. Swearing an oath. He understood that. What did he do? He labored to understand 
the covenant keeper and the promises and held those close to his heart. And that's the only place where we as Christians will ever find assurance, will ever find guidance in whatever it is that we need guidance for, whether it be spiritual or whether it be things that go on in our life. We have to take up the means of grace diligently. We cannot live carelessly before them. Remember the sermon on Jeremiah chapter 7 some time ago when we spoke about they said, here is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Look what we've got. They had it all. Priests, sacrifices, the temple. They had, it. they had all of the means of grace. And yet, God through Jeremiah said, you are using the means of grace carelessly and as a result, I'm going to judge you for it. Because you were thinking that by the very appearance of the temple in your midst, that everything's okay. No, it's a heart issue. If we doubt that we have allowed ourselves to fall into complacency, we have listened to ourselves in some way, we've listened to the world's lies or to the subtle workings of the devil, and we've neglected to listen to God. Instead, as Abraham did, we have to throw ourselves upon God's mercy and His grace and His word and be diligent to battle those things that often come in and want to overshadow the smoking fire pot and the fiery torch of God's presence. We have to dispel those feelings and instead receive the blessings. Think about how many times, just, just a little note, how many times does God refer to covenant in His work specifically in his work with his people in covenant throughout the Bible. How many times do you think he does? How much emphasis do you think is laid on how that relationship works between him and his people? Let me give you a couple of others first. The love of God. 110 times throughout the scriptures, particularly the love of God towards his people. That's how many times it talks about, 110 times throughout all of the scriptures. Grace. The grace of God, grace from God to his people, particularly that phrase, 74 times all through the scriptures. Love, in terms of God and his elect, is 151 times, just that word love in some context. 160 times is God's relationship of holiness to his people. But, covenant the idea of covenant is more than doubled any of these in the cutting of the covenant. 284 times God talks about cutting covenant with his people and ministering to them grace and sending them salvation. That is the main theme throughout all of the scriptures. That is what dispels any doubt we may have in what God is doing with us through us or by us. And it is a very sad thing to say that only Christians are able to have doubt dispelled. The people of the world, when they doubt, it's, that's part of the misery of original sin. And they can't escape it. Not only do they have the horror of the darkness come, but when they have that horror of God's deep darkness come upon them, there is no sacrifices. It's simply the smoking fire pot, that oven, and the torch of God's holiness. 
It gives you some impressions about hell. Only a prepared heart can receive the prepared gifts of God. And only by Christ's blood can God wash away the dark stains of doubt. But it's done. And we must keep in mind that it is done as it was done with Abram and us. Same. God is our shield. And God protects us from the smoking firepot and the flaming torch because of the sacrifices that are given on our behalf. All of that is fulfilled in the seed, which is Jesus Christ. And it does that for us. And Christ becomes the eminent glory of God, the holiness of God, the judge, the lawyer, the defense attorney, the sacrifice, everything for us. He saves us. And that's the song that we'll sing in heaven. He has redeemed us from sin by his blood. The cutting of the covenant, these are, the, these are basic ideas surrounding the stability of the Christian. Without these ideas, the Christian has no stability. Without the cutting and the power of God's covenant with his people, we are left to ourselves. Let us take a note that God can be trusted, that God is the promise keeper, and that God's relationship with us is enacted by way of his covenant with us, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Mighty one, mighty promise-keeping God, covenant-keeping God, we come before you and ask that you would be so gracious as to instill in us a greater measure of your spirit that we would not doubt your workings among us, but that instead you would deal tenderly with us and long suffer with us that you might minister more of the spirit that we may trust you, that we may with the disciples say, increase our faith, that we may with Abram stand and gaze and see the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch of your holiness and know that you are our shield and that we, O oh Lord, are protected by such things. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who is the seed that will ultimately come and came from Abram. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that you have ministered his work to us. We ask that you would please enable us to be dedicated to you and consecrated to you throughout this week. We ask for your help. Aid us that we might not doubt you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, 
Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.